Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Uh, before I jump into the talk this morning, why don't we take a minute and pray and just prepare our hearts to hear whatever God might want to say to us. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the grace that you've given us during this time. It's been difficult, difficult for the whole world, really. And yet, O oh Lord, your grace is sufficient for us, and we just ask you for grace as we move forward. And this morning, I ask you as we talk about this so important subject, that you give us understanding, open up our hearts, O oh Lord, help people to see the truth of the message. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is no subject, no message, no communication of any kind that from my perspective is more important than what I'm going to be talking about here today in the next few weeks. It's the message of the gospel. This particular message is so powerful that it is able to impart eternal life to those who receive it. I mean, you think about that for a minute, a message that is so strong, so powerful, that those who respond to it receive the gift of eternal life. Now, if you think I'm overstating the power of this message, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, he said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. So I'm not ashamed of this good news message. That's what the word gospel means, good news. I'm not ashamed of this good news because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. The word salvation just means deliverance. When you read the word saved or salvation in the Bible, you have to ask the question, saved from what? And many times when Paul uses this word, it's a word that means to be delivered from or saved from the penalty of our sin. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now when Paul talks about the power of this message in Romans 1.16, the Greek word that he used for power here is the word dunamis, and it's a word from which we get our English word dynamite. And so it has an inherent power, this gospel message. One of my favorite scholars, Dr. Vincent, put it this way. <clears throat> he said, the gospel is not merely a powerful means in God's hands, but is in itself a divine energy. It's really just like creation itself. You remember how God spoke into existence all of creation, we read, God said, let there be light. He just spoke the words and suddenly there was light. In the similar sense, when we respond to the gospel message, we become a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. They're born anew based on this message. A scholar by the name of J.A. Fitzmaier put it this way, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, God's power becomes operative and succeeds in saving and the same idea of a message that's so powerful is reiterated by Paul in other places. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, for the message of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. Now, this message is so important because of the implications behind it. Those who respond positively to this message and put their trust in Jesus to be their savior, they receive eternal life. But those who do not respond to the message receive eternal death. And so this is a message we don't want to take for granted. It's a message we don't want to get wrong. What exactly do we need to believe in order to have eternal life? What should and should not be included in this gospel message is what I want to talk about here today. But this, this is a message that not only imparts eternal life, it's a message that changes our lives in the present. Some of you who have read the book that I just published, read the story of one of the first times that I shared the gospel with anybody. I was 13 years old and there was a Jewish widow that lived across the street. And often she would ask me to do various chores around the house for her and she would many times pay me to do that and, and I, I appreciated helping her. At a certain point though, I felt like God wanted me to share my faith with her. Now, I'm not sure where the thought originally came from. I think my dad had probably done a, a sermon series since he was a pastor on the subject of the importance of sharing our faith with other people. But I was at her house one day and I just felt that God wanted me to share the gospel with her that day. And I went into one of the rooms of her house and she had a library. She had turned the entire bedroom into this huge library and I was just praying to God and I said, I don't want to do this. And there were three reasons why I did not want to share my faith with her. Number one is, from my perspective, she was so old. She was like 40 years old. And I was only 13. Who was I to talk with her? And then second, she was Jewish, and I thought maybe she'd be offended if I tried to share Christian faith with her. And then third, I had no idea how to go about doing it. How do we even bring up the subject? And so I, I prayed again, God, if you want me to do this, you've got you to lead me. And I suddenly noticed that she had in her library a Bible, and I'd never noticed that before. And I thought, well, if I share the gospel with her Bible, it would make it more receptive. She'd be more likely to believe the message. And so I, I pulled the, the Bible from the, the shelf there, and I, I suddenly realized I had a problem. Hers was a Jewish Bible. Uh, the problem with that is that the Jewish Bible does not include the New Testament. It doesn't have the story of Jesus dying on the cross and rising again. And, and also the books are organized differently in the Jewish Bible. So I just didn't know what to do. And so once again, I prayed, God, you've got to show me what to do. Lead me to some place. And I don't usually do this. But on this occasion, I just opened up the Bible to see where it landed. And I came to Psalm 14. In verses two and three of Psalm 14, it goes this way. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who's wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. And suddenly I realized what I needed to do. I walked into the other room and I said to Roz, I said, do you believe that you're a good person? And she responded, yes. And I said, do you think that you're good enough to get to heaven? And once again, she responded, yes. She did believe in a place called heaven. And then I said, do you mind if I read you some verses that come from your Bible that I got from your library? And she said, no, that'd be fine. And then I read these verses. 
from Psalm 14, and I explained that none of us are good enough. None of us are righteous enough to earn eternal life. We're not perfect. God is, and there's a gap that exists between us. And then I explained how God had sent his son Jesus to die in our place and for our sin, and that if we'd put our trust, our confidence in him, we could have eternal life. Now, if you read the story, you realize there are more details that I don't, I don't want to include here at this time. But I wanted to share this story because of the change that took place in this woman after she responded to the message. She put her faith in Jesus Christ. I had never seen anything like it. It's like she transformed before my very eyes. Suddenly she became a joy-filled person. I don't know that I'd ever seen her being joyful. She was filled with joy. She began to read her Bible on her own. She began to even ask me questions of interpretation about the Bible. Think about that for a minute, that she's coming to a 13-year-old boy looking for answers to questions because she was so hungry with everything she was reading. And then she began to share her faith with other people immediately. And I realized God had changed this woman. This is the power of the gospel. It saves us in the present. It saves us in the future. It is the power to deliver us to those who believe. But the question again before us today is what exactly is the message? What things need to be included in a gospel presentation for people to understand it? And I think there are three main things. And I realize, by the way, that these things are going to be reviewed for many of you. Although I want to encourage you, if you've been a Christian for years, to consider memorizing this presentation because it's just a simple way to communicate efficiently our gospel message. But I think there are three things we need to understand. First of all, that the problem is sin. That that's the problem that we are addressing. Second, the solution is Jesus and it's because of who he was and is and what he came to do. And then finally, the response God's looking for is faith or trust. The problem is sin. That's what we're trying to address. The solution is Jesus, specifically because of who he was and because of what he did. Both of those things are important. And the response God's looking for is trust. Now, I want to spend some time talking about each of these, and I'll spend most of the time just on this first point. The problem is sin. And I want to emphasize this one because I believe that although most people feel like they blow it, they make mistakes, most people do not see themselves as being sinful. They don't see themselves as being sinners. And if we do not regard ourselves properly and realize our condition, we will not then reach out for a savior to save us. The problem is sin. Now, I realize that people don't like the word sin. It's one of those churchy words. And it's a word that simply means, though, to miss the mark, both in the Greek language and the Hebrew. The main word that's translated sin in both the Old and New Testaments is a word that basically means to miss the mark. Just means you're aiming for something and you miss the mark. The New Bible Dictionary puts it this way. In classical Greek, it's used for missing a target or taking a wrong road. It's the general New Testament term for sin as concrete wrongdoing, the violation of God's law. In other words, it's usually a specific thing where we miss the mark, a particular action that we had where we miss the mark. Now, God has standards of right and wrong, and this is basically saying we all fail those standards. 
Old versions of the Bible, by the way, many times would translate the word sin as trespasses. And I like that particular word because it conveys this idea that you see a sign that says no trespassing, but you choose to trespass anyway. I admit that there have been times before where I've been out in the woods and I saw signs that said, stay on the path. Don't get off the path. And then I'd see other signs that would say no trespassing. And yet I chose on occasion to go off the path. And sometimes I discovered why that sign said no trespassing because as I got over to the edge, I realized this is a dangerous place where I'm standing right now. Well, the bottom line is that all of us have trespassed before. Paul put it this way in Romans 3.23. He said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have missed the mark. All of us fall short of God's glorious standard of what is good, what is right. And I think this is something, by the way, that most of us just intuitively know is true about us. Over the years, I've run into just a handful of people that didn't believe they'd ever sinned in their lives, but most people just have this sense that, that something is wrong. When I was talking with my Jewish neighbor, she initially had trouble with this very point about sin because she thought she was a good person, and from a human perspective, she was. I mean, comparing her with other people, I would say she was a, a good person, but she didn't realize that the problem is our sinfulness. All of us have sinned. We all fall short of God's standard. And the comparison that we need to use is not us with somebody else, but it's a comparison with God. See, we like to compare ourselves with others, and sometimes maybe we come out ahead. I think this is one of the reasons, by the way, that people like sitcoms. Because they'll watch this program of, of these families or these individuals that seem to have so many problems and we'll watch this sitcom and it's funny because we look at that family and we say, well, I'm messed up, but not quite like that. But what happens when we compare ourselves with God? And do we realize really how sinful we are? When I first moved to Morgantown, I, I would often go on the campus of the West Virginia University into what's called the mountain lair on our campus. It's just a congregating place. And I'd go to meet college students and share the gospel with them. And many times they were very open for me to talk with them. And I'd bring up the subject of sin. And I discovered that most people had this idea in the back of their mind that God kind of graves on a curve. Like if you're better than 50% of the people, you'll go to heaven. And if you're in the lower half, you won't. And many of you are familiar with bell curves. I don't know if they use them in grading anymore, but a bell curve is such that a certain percentage of the class get an A, a certain percentage get a B. Usually it was a grading scale like 90 to 100 is an A, 80 to 90 is a B, and so forth. And so it's called a bell curve. And sometimes a bell curve, by the way, works against us. When I was taking Greek in Bible college, I got a 93% in this one class. 93% at the end of the year, I got a C plus because of the bell curve. Realized most of the class had done better than I had. 93% was not quite good enough. But over the years, I'd ask these college students, if God did great on a curve, where would you put yourself? Would you be in a 90 to 100? Would you be 80 to 90? Where would you be in the curve? And in years of doing this, I never once came across a student who didn't put him or herself in that top A category. Every one of them thought that they were in this 90 to 100. Made me wonder, well, where are all the sinners? Because certainly everybody that I'm reading or meeting 
is someone who thinks that they're an A. And I realize that people do not realize their sinfulness. And it was at this point that I would usually ask a second question. I'd say, how many times do you think you sin in a day? And they'd usually say, oh, maybe two or three times. Some would say more than that, four or five. I'd get different answers. Two or three. And then I'd say, well, let me define sin a little bit more clearly for you. Jesus said that sin doesn't include just actions. It includes also your words and it includes your thoughts. Now, Jesus said if you lust in your heart, you've, you've already committed the sin. If you've lust in your heart. And then I'd say, based on this definition, how many times do you think you've sinned in a day? And usually if I was talking to a guy, which most of the time it was a guy, he'd start laughing because he'd realize he sins constantly. If you include things like lust, if you include angry words, if angry thoughts and other things are included in this category called sin, we sin a lot. And then I'd say, well, let me, just for the sake of argument, let me suggest that perhaps you sin 20 times in a day. And at this point, I would usually pull out a calculator, which I have a calculator out here, and I'd say, oh, let's assume you sin 20 times in a day. It's basically once an hour you commit a sin. Do you realize that at the end of one year that you would commit 7,300 sins? In one year, 7,300 sins. And then, if you live to be 70 years old, I'd put it in the calculator again, you would commit 511,000. That's half a million sins. And you're in the top 10%. And of course, we realize we sin more than that. And this is part of the problem that we're more sinful than we realize. We're more broken than we realize. And the other part of the problem is that God is more holy than we realize. His standard is complete holiness and righteousness. And suddenly we recognize that we've got a problem. There's a gap between sinful people and a holy God. And so the question is, how do you bridge the gap? And people have different perspectives on this. As I have talked with people and asked over the years, some think, well, you just do the best you can and you hope for the best. But is the best we can good enough for complete holiness of God? I'd say no. I'd also argue that none of us do the best we can. Not one of us, many times, all of us have seen a situation where the best we could would have been to say no to this thing, but we did it anyway. We did not do the best we could. And so other people think, well, maybe you follow the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have others do unto you. But once again, I'd say even if that were the standard, none of us does it. Other people think, well, it's maybe going to church or getting religion. You might be surprised to hear this, but some of the biggest sinners I've ever met were people in a church building. Going to church doesn't make us a Christian. Going to church just means you're a sinful person who's going to church. It's, it's, it's not through church attendance. Some, someone has put it this way, that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than stepping in a garage makes you a car. No, the solution to our problem has to lie outside of ourselves. We are hopelessly sinful, hopelessly broken. Even if today we decide to stop sinning, we could not do it. And so we need a savior, a deliverer. So the problem is sin, but the solution is Jesus. And it's because first of all, who he was, and then second, what he came to do. Now, who was Jesus? He wasn't an ordinary man. 
He was God in the flesh. This is why his birth was so unique. If you go to the Christmas story and you realize Jesus' birth was unlike any other birth in history. You read about it in Matthew 1.18 where we read the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. They had not even come together yet. She was a virgin and suddenly she's found to be pregnant. And you realize this truth that Jesus' father was not Joseph, it was God. And Jesus' mother was Mary. What does this mean? Well, it means Jesus was fully a man, but he was also God in the flesh. And why does this matter? Well, it made him the perfect candidate to bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful people, the God-man. The Apostle Paul explained it this way in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. He said, for there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus himself, human, who gave himself a ransom for all. A ransom is a price you pay to secure the release of someone. You pay the price. Jesus paid the price to secure our release. But there's one God and And then there's man, and Jesus Christ was the one who stood in the gap. Now, Jesus' deity is essential to the story. You say, why does this matter? Well, it has to do with what he came to do, which I'll talk about in a minute. But he had to be perfect to be our savior. Only God could be perfect and live this sinless life. He had to be perfect to be our savior. You see, I can't be your deliverer or savior because I've got my own sin. I've got my own junk. I can't step in and say, I'll save you. I need saving myself. But what if someone were born who could live a sinless life? And what if he offered to take the penalty for us and pay the price of our sin? This is exactly what Jesus Christ came to do for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, he made, or God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made the one who didn't know, never experienced sin to be sin or become sin, to take upon himself our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is saying that the righteous one died for the unrighteous so the unrighteous could be declared righteous. The sinless one died for sinners so that sinners could be declared not guilty as though we were perfect. In fact, when we put our faith in Christ, we are declared perfect by God. Why? Because he removes our sin from us. The price was paid on the cross. And so Jesus is the solution because of who he is and what he came to do. That he came to die in our place and for our sin, to pay the penalty that we deserved. Now, Romans 10.9 puts these two ideas together, the identity of Jesus plus what he came to do. In Romans 10, 9, we read, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The word Lord in this verse is a reference to Jesus' deity. The Greek word that's used here in this verse is a word that pointed to the Old Testament, the, the name of God in the Old Testament. Paul is saying, if you acknowledge that Jesus is God, and you believe in your heart that he died and rose again from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be delivered from the penalty of your sin. And the Bible knowledge commentator, 
uh, commentary, Dr. Whitmer puts it this way. The confession is an acknowledgement that God has been incarnated in Jesus, that Jesus Christ is God, also essential is heart faith that God raised him from the dead. The result is salvation. So Jesus, the sinless son of God, was willing to die in our place and for our sin to take the penalty so that we would not experience eternal death, which is the consequence of our sin. Romans 6.23, we read, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word death here is a reference to spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. That's what we've earned because of our sin, to be separated from our creator for all eternity. But Jesus Christ came to save us from that, to bridge the gap. The justice of God against the sin of the world was poured out on Jesus and he died. But of course he rose again from the dead, which is so significant because it indicates that God accepted the payment on our behalf. So the problem is sin, the solution is Jesus specifically because of who he was, the son of God and God the son, and because of what he came to do. But what is the response that God is looking for? The response is faith or trust. Reading Romans 10, 9 again, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By the way, confession and believing here are really one step. It's a confession that's born out of our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. And by the way, I like to use the word trust because I think a lot of people, they believe the facts related to Jesus. Maybe they believe the fact about his birth, his death, even his resurrection. But the issue is, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ to be your savior? Faith or trust is always the condition by which people get right with God. I'd like to demonstrate that next week by demonstrating that both in the Old and New Testament, there has always been only one way people get right with God, and it's through faith. But Paul summarized it nicely in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He said, for you are saved... In other words, delivered from the penalty, penalty of your sin by grace. And it's through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's God's gift. Not from works so that no one could boast. There's a lot here. But he's making the point that this salvation, this free gift of forgiveness from our sin is something that you can't earn. It is something you have to receive. And the basis by which you receive it is faith, for you are saved, delivered from the penalty of your sin by grace. Grace means something you can't earn. It's something you don't deserve. It's God's kindness. You are delivered from the penalty of your sin by God's kindness, and the means through which it happens is through faith. We put our trust in Jesus Christ to be our Savior. Jesus Christ was speaking with the religious leader of his day, a man named Nicodemus. And he was speaking about the fact that he would be hanging on a cross. Nicodemus wouldn't have understood this at the moment, but talking about how he was gonna be dying on a cross and talking about how you get right with God, Jesus said these words in John 3, 14 through 16. He said, the son of man must be lifted up. Here he's emphasizing his humanity. The son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. 
He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Based on these verses, how does a person get eternal life? What says anyone who believes in him? The son of man would be lifted up. Whoever believes in him, he goes on to say, Jesus went on to say in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved or delivered through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed or put his trust in the name of the one and only Son of God. It doesn't get much clearer than that. The problem we all face is sin. Even this religious leader came to understand he needed to be born again, born from on high, born anew. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus because of who he was and what he came to do to die in our place and for our sin, rising from the dead, demonstrating that the payment had been accepted. And the response God's looking for is for us to put our trust in him. Question I'd like to raise this morning by way of application is, have you put your trust in Jesus to be your savior? Has there come a point where you've acknowledged your, your need for a savior? You realize you've sinned against God. You realize you can't fix it. And you've, you've reached out to God's solution to the problem, who is Jesus, and said, I want to put my confidence in you, Lord Jesus. You died in my place and for my sin and rose again from the dead. Save me because you are the savior of the world. In a moment, I'm going to close with a prayer that I want to invite you to pray with me. It's not the prayer itself that saves, but the faith behind it. But I want to offer a prayer that if you recognize your need, that you could pray today to receive Christ as your Savior. If you're a Christian here today, though, again, I want to encourage you to be ready to share your faith. I think as things go on in our world, people are looking for the hope of the gospel. People are looking for eternal life. And we need to have the answer, and we need to be ready to share it. We need to understand what the problem is. We need to understand why Jesus is the answer to the problem. And we need to be able to direct people to the solution that they would put their trust in Jesus to be their savior. But let me close with this prayer. I call it a prayer of invitation. Or <clears throat> if you just agree with what I'm praying in your own heart, it's just a prayer to express your faith in Jesus Christ to be your savior. And here's the prayer. And again, you could use your own words. It's not the words itself. It's the faith behind it. But pray something along these lines. Dear God, I know I sin. I know I blow it. And I can't fix it. And I do believe you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world, to die in my place and for my sin as the sinless sacrifice. He died for me and was buried. But then he rose again from the dead. And he's the savior of the world. Today, though, I want to put my faith in him. Today, I receive him as my savior. Today, I claim the promise you gave in John 3, where God, you said, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I come to you in Jesus' name and because of what Jesus did for me. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.